Good morning, church. As we continue to worship God this morning, uh, we're going to look into James to hear what he has to tell us this morning. Uh, we have been in the study of James last week. We looked at James chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and today we'll look at James chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. That's that section on words or the power of the tongue uh, that James warns us about. <clears throat> just, for, just so that we get the flow, let me read the text in its entirety. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And now we come to the verses that we're going to look at. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's ask God to help us today, this morning. Lord, we're here to agree with the psalmist that the entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. We're here, Lord, asking that you would unfold your words to us this morning. And so we pray, as the hymn writer did a century ago, Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me, as thou did breaks the loaves beside the sea. Beyond the sacred page I seek thee, Lord. My spirit yearns for thee, O living word. That is our prayer this morning. That beyond the sacred page, beyond the sacred text, that we would see you. And in so doing, we might be transformed for your glory and for our good. To that end, Lord, we pray for a blessing on our time together as we look into your words. Speak to us, for we are open ears and open minds, willing to obey. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me. Now, if you've lived for any length of time, you know that's a lie. <laughs> Talk may be cheap, but words are powerful. Words build, words destroy, 
Words poison, words heal. And you and I know it is very hard to control our words. And this is what I love about the Bible, right? We just read in verse 7, For every kind of animal, bird, reptile, sea creature is subdued and has been subdued by humankind. But no human being can subdue the tongue. How very true. You can, you can subdue, you can tame animals, lions, tigers, but you can't subdue. The human being cannot subdue the tongue. It is very hard to control, and it's so true in life. It actually happened to me this week. Uh, one of our sons came to me, and um, he, he, he was wanting something. So he had laid out this perfect case in his mind, and so he started making his case. And as he went on, step one, step two, I got to a point where I said, well, I don't agree with your assumption there. I think you're wrong. He said, Dad, stop. Let me finish. Now, normally, I, I try to exercise patience. You know, uh, God has given me two ears and one mouth, so they say, listen twice as much as you speak. You say, God is sovereign. He's in control. It's not all about me. I mean, I, I get it. I, I, I try to practice it. Uh, but this time was different, and I shouldn't have been surprised because, after all, I was going to preach on this, right? <laughs> God is a way of kind of, you know, cutting you down to size and say, okay, just make sure you know what you're trying to tell other people here. So, so uh, when he said, stop, let me finish, something triggered. And I said, you know, I really don't like the tone of what you're saying. And if that's the way you're going to talk to me, I don't think I want to listen to anything else that you have to say. Uh, obviously, that was not a right response. Uh, I'm just human like all of us here. Now, I, 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 you know, if you have been a parent or if you are a parent, you know that our words have a whole lot more impact on our children than we would ever imagine. Uh, he was devastated. Uh, he asked me for forgiveness. I asked him for forgiveness and all is well. But, but it, was a, it was a very, very relevant reminder that the tongue is so hard to control. And this is not a foreign concept to you. You and I know that this is true. If you are like me, you have said it an umpteen times. I wish I had not said that. I cannot take those words back. They have gone out. Words are very powerful. Um, words also can light up your imagination and it can move us. You know, we have heard, for example, that a picture is worth a thousand words. I sometimes wonder whether that is true, because if that was really true, God would, given us a book, would have given us a book of pictures, right? Instead, he gave us a lot of words. Now, sometimes I think you can paint a better picture with thousand words than with a palette of colors. Listen to one poet who described Jesus turning water into wine. Here's what he said. Conscious water met its maker and blushed. Conscious water met its maker and blushed. I would bet you that none of your Snapchat videos of the wedding in Cana can hold a candle to that picture, can it? Words move us. So somebody can say, I have a dream, and 250,000 people who hear it start moving because words have enormous power. Now, if our words are so powerful... God's words are infinitely more powerful. Go into Genesis chapter 1 in the first six days. Nine times we hear, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. God speaks and creation comes into existence. 
In Psalm 19, we read that all of creation speaks. The heavens are telling. The sky shows his handiwork, right? Look at all the stars. Look at the orbits. They're all fixed. They're moving. They're regularly moving. The sun rises. The sun sets. Get away from the city lights. Look at the number of stars in the sky. All of that is declaring, is speaking. But you know the sad, sad part of all of that is such loud declaration means nothing if you cannot hear. To a deaf man, it means nothing. And so all of this can be a loud declaration only if the Holy Spirit turns our hearing on. Isn't that right? Which is why two people can go out, look at the stars. One can fall on her knees and say, praise God. And the other one can look up and say, wow, look at what the Big Bang has created. Same evidence, but two different reactions. Psalm 29, God speaks and cedars are broken. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Or think of all of the prophets, Moses and Jeremiah. God spoke and he pressed them into service for his uh, agenda. Then we have 400 years of silence. Then comes Jesus on the scene. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He spoke. People left everything they had, followed him in discipleship. He spoke. The winds and the waves obeyed him. He spoke. People were healed. He spoke. Satan was defeated. He spoke. Lazarus walked out of the grave. When God speaks, things happen. And then, of course, we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed, inspired, right? And it's profitable for correction, teaching, etc. God's words have enormous power. So James starts in the first section, shows us that the tongue has enormous power to control. Just like little bits can move horses. And horses, you know, were the big machines of their day, which is how we get the word horsepower, right? So these huge horses can be moved with little bits. These ships with strong winds can be directed by little rudders. Just like that, the tongue, even though it is so little, has disproportionate power to move and to control. To move and to control. We also learned last week that the tongue can destroy. It can set things on fire. And you know how it is. If you want to set things on fire, all you need is a lot of fuel and just a little spark, right? If you want to destroy somebody, you really don't need a gun. All you need is a tongue. Just use it, right? Did you see what AK did last week? I wonder about his motives. I don't know. I'm just saying. You know. Throw in a little half-truths. Manipulate a little conversation. Introduce some doubt. Before you know it, you've destroyed the person beyond the point of recovery. It's so very easy. And you see this in living color, regardless of where you're on the political spectrum, you see this in living color on our political stage. Tongues can destroy. It's so true. That's what the Bible says. And we experience this in life. We also read that no human being can subdue the tongue. It is a whole lot easier to subdue lions and tigers than to subdue the tongue. Jesus said, for example, on the last day, on the day of judgment, 
people will give account for every careless word that is spoken. Now, if that doesn't sober us, I don't know what will. Handle our tongue with care. That was the message. So that brings us to verse 9. So not only is the tongue powerful, it can control, it can destroy. James shows us that the way we use our tongue is pretty absurd if you think about it, right? So he says, with it we bless our Lord and Father. So bless meaning we have good things to say about him. It's the same root word from which we get the word eulogy, a good word, good things. So with it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are created in God's image. That is weird. It's the same tongue. To bless, say good things, and to curse. Now, what does curse mean? A curse is, in some sense, in a simple way to think about it, curse is just the opposite of blessing. If a blessing is a good word and favor resting on somebody, a curse is removing that favor and wishing ill on that person. Let's just look at some examples. Uh, so if you see the, where the word curse is used, um, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the serpent is cursed. In, in verse 1, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So here was a serpent who was crafty than all the other beasts. And as we read, we'll find that this was a very clever, walking, talking snake. Right? And then, after all that happened that we know of, in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the serpent was pretty crafty and had a rather elevated position, it looks like, from verse 1. Gets to go down, eat dust, be on his belly. That's the difference, right? In some way being blessed to be totally cursed, losing all advantage. Or in Genesis 4, remember, Cain killed Abel. And, God, and there is a curse. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. As we read in verse 11, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. The favor of God is completely removed. That's a curse. Now, we also read about curses in uh, Exodus um, uh, 21, for example. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. There, there the word curse means to revile to dishonor, to belittle, right? Not giving parents their due honor in the Old Testament was worthy of death. If we blaspheme God and curse God, that was worthy of death. So we get the picture. A curse is basically the opposite of a blessing. Instead of saying, may God's favor rest on you, I say, may God's favor not rest on you. May you bear the punishment. May you get all that you deserve. I don't wish you well whatsoever. And uh, what do we? And who do we curse? Verse nine: People who are made in the image of God. Now, what's that image all about? Well, in Genesis one, we read: 
we are human beings, man and woman. We are created in the image of God. So the word image there means idol. An idol represents the real thing, which is why people worship idols in many parts of the world, because an idol to them represents some God, right? So we are, in a sense, idols. We are representatives of God. Or another way to think about it is we are icons. Just as you see icons on your screen, we are icons of God. We are called to represent God. So the interesting thing here is this. With the same tongue, we bless God, we say good things, and then we curse anybody who is made in the image of God. We curse those who represent God. We curse the icons of God. This is crazy, is what James is saying. Well, that you might then ask, okay, so what about cussing? I mean, if you think about it, uh, uh, the air is full of expletives, right? You go to the workplace, on TV, any place you turn. I mean, it's just... Looks like that's the kind of air we breathe. Well, the dictionary tells us, tells us that cuss is an alteration of the word curse. You use profanity, vulgar language, uh, offensive language. At least one thing you know, it is certainly not a blessing if you use that, right? Uh, it is absolutely falls in the same category of a curse. So the problem is that both blessing and cursing come from the same mouth. It is like praising the Lord on Sunday, hands up, getting out and cursing people Monday through Saturday. If we do that, James says, it is absurd. It is absolutely absurd and doesn't make logical or moral sense. It's total nonsense. That's the point that James is making. We cannot and should not be double-tongued people, right? So what about cussing if you just want to vent? You know, I, you know I'm, I'm really frustrated. I'm, I'm just tired of this thing. I just want to vent. And I'm not, you know, I'm not ascribing all this profanity to any particular person created in God's image. I just want to vent. But, you know, this, the, the, the bad news is, that the Bible does not make an exception clause for venting. <laughs> I mean, God's direction is very, very clear. Don't be inconsistent in your speech. Don't praise the Lord and curse people with the same tongue. Right? Yeah. That is very clear. We don't need commentators to tell us what that means. We can understand that. It is very clear. The question is, do we want to obey? That's the real question. Jameson goes on to use another analogy to demonstrate the absurd ways in which we use our tongue. Verse 11. A spring does not pour out fresh water and bitter water from the same opening, does it? Huh, that's interesting, isn't it? Literally, this is how it translates. If you do a literal wooden translation of that text, it says, Can a spring gush forth from the same opening both sweet and and bitter. That's what is translated fresh and bitter. Right? Both sweet and bitter. It just doesn't make any sense. A spring cannot give you both sweet water and bitter water. If it does, there is a problem with the source. And Jesus is right on the money, right? So he says, here's the problem. 
In Luke chapter 6, we read this. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What is inside just comes out when it's agitated. You have a glass of iced tea, you shake it, you don't get spilled milk, do you? You get spilled iced tea. That's what it's all about. What's in our heart just comes out very naturally. Now, we might be clever. We might couch it by saying it's a prayer request, it's a little encouragement, uh, might be a little rebuke, you know, the Bible has got place for rebuke. So uh, we can do all those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, what's inside just comes out. The problem is really with the spring and not anything else. And Jesus says, for example, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all of that come from the heart. And our words just reveal what's within. That is the truth. So let's go back to this bitter, sweet water deal. Tucked away in Exodus 15, you have an account that involves bitter and sweet water. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus 15. Uh, Verse 22. So Moses is leading the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, and he's bringing them across the Red Sea. Then Moses made Israel um, set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah, because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. Notice, they've come through one water problem, right? They couldn't cross the Red Sea. God just solved that for them. Now they come to another water problem. They got water they can't drink. It's bitter. And it's also interesting to note, it just took them three days to move from celebration to complaining, right? It's only three days here. Went in three days in the wilderness and found no water. It took them three days to move from thanksgiving to whining. That's what they got. Now, they forgot what God can do because they forgot what God had done just three days ago. And so Moses cries out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. That is a strange Strange prescription for a problem, isn't it? Pick up a log, throw it into the water, problem solved. Now here's the deal. Moses did obey, and the people saw him obey. Now here's the point. Things may seem unreasonable. It may be difficult and unreasonable to obey what he's calling us to do. But the solution to the problem lies in obedience, regardless of how crazy it might be. Obedience as a solution to the problem. And then, of course, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. You know, you get tested when you've gone through something to make sure you've learned from the past, right? Saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, 
I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Listen diligently, do what is right, pay attention, keep all the statutes. And you know, healing, in this case, was going to be dependent on their keeping these things. And verse 27, beautiful verse. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water. How many tribes were there? Twelve. And 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So from one water problem in the Red Sea to a water problem with bitter water, obedience, God gives them sweet water, then takes them to a beautiful oasis where they have enough water and palm trees, perhaps dates, to nibble on the goodness of God and enjoy his blessing. But in between there, there is this thing. Listen, pay attention, obey, keep my statutes. I'm your healer. Things will be well with you. So, uh, if we have a problem with bitterness, and there is bitter water that we have to turn, you and I have to pay attention to what God is calling us to do. Right? We have to listen to God's voice and obey even when it is very hard and it is very difficult. That's what God is calling us to do. And it's not easy, but with the empowering and energizing grace of God, we can do it. So, for example, if you, turn, if you go to Ephesians 4.29, it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. It doesn't make any sense if you're really ticked off with something, right? Corrupting talk refers to foul talk. Talk that is rotten, that's decaying, that's harmful. And you know, Ephesians chapter 4, the theme is one of unity, unity of the body. And the point being made is, this kind of talk destroys unity within the body. right? So, that kind of language, the words that fall out of our mouths, have a greater impact than we can think about that we might even know about. It's more than just a few people around us. It destroys unity. And even worse, go to verse uh, verse 30, it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God who resides in us is grieved by our words. Think about that. How do we deal with that then? So you can only grieve a loved one. If a stranger doesn't grieve, the Holy Spirit of God is grieved. So we should really follow what he's asking us to do. Do that which is right in his eyes, even when it is difficult. Now, if you think about our words, isn't it interesting that when we talk, we are representing one of two kingdoms. Either we are representing our kingdom or we are representing God's kingdom. So, if I'm frustrated with something, if I don't get what I want, when I want, just the way I like it, and I start lashing out, I'm saying, hey, I'm ruling, this is my kingdom, this is the way I want it. It's my kingdom. So I'm representing my kingdom. Now, if I'm representing God's kingdom, then my words are going to advance God's agenda. It might be unity of the spirit. Obedience to what he's calling me to do. So all of our words really represent one or two kingdoms. And the question we really have to ask ourselves is this. 
Whose kingdom do your words represent? Whose kingdom do my words represent? Is it my kingdom or is it God's kingdom? James goes on to talk about then orchards and vineyards. He says, can a fig tree produce olives or a vine produce figs? This is just impossible. Because a fruit, after all, is consistent with the nature of the tree, right? I mean, a fig tree produces figs, an olive tree produces olives, vine produces grapes. If you have a wrong fruit on the right tree, there is a problem. There's something fundamentally wrong. So, if you look at all of these four verses, we see that there is a tongue that both blesses and curses. There is a spring that gives bitter water and sweet water, and there is a tree that bears the wrong fruit. We sure have an identity problem here, doesn't it? It seems that way. It's a real problem. Am I a blesser or a curser? Am I a sweet water spring or a bitter water spring? And am I a fig tree or an olive tree? So the first question we have to ask ourselves is this. Who am I? Right? It's an identity problem. Who am I? Am I a child of the living God? Do I trust Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins and for eternal life? Do I trust him to take me from here to heaven? The question of who am I? And think about this. If you and I are children of the living God, the Spirit of God lives within us. But that brings us a certain amount of responsibility. We've got to feed the Spirit, nourish the Spirit through obedience. And when that happens, the Spirit of God bursts forth through our soul, through our personalities, through our thinking, through our emotions, to really bring about the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is like any other fruit. It doesn't happen overnight. You plant a seed, you don't get a fruit tomorrow. It takes time, it takes care, it takes nourishing, it takes caring, it takes feeding. And what we are called to do is live a life of obedience that nourishes so that the Spirit can come forth through the rest of our personalities and all of our being so that there is fruit. And that's the first step when we answer the question, who am I for identity? Not only do we ask, who am I? We also have to ask the question, whose am I? In the Bible, for example, God reveals himself using different names. There is Jehovah, the self-revealing one. Jehovah Elohim, he's the creator God. Jehovah Jireh. He's the provider God. So, for example, when Abraham took to sacrifice Isaac, God provided a ram. That was Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Rapha, God is the healer. Through all these names, God presents himself in situations addressing specific human needs, thus showing us in unmistakable terms that God is sufficient for every need we have. And one of the terms he uses here is Jehovah Adonai. Um, And that comes from the word Adon, meaning owner. 
And when somebody owns a slave, for example, it's not just owning, but there is also a responsibility that goes with that owning. So God reveals himself as Adonai, and then something interesting happens. So in Genesis 15, you find Abraham addressing God as Adonai. So uh, let me just give you a quick background. In Genesis 12, three chapters before, Abraham is 75 years old, and God is asking him to leave all of his family in his place and says, I'm going to show you another place. You go there. Right? So he packs up and goes. Three, uh, ten years have gone by, three chapters. He's 80, about 85 now. And he says, uh, after these things, verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, O Jehovah Adonai, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. O Lord Adonai, O owner God, you own me. You own my old body here. I don't have a child. You have told me all these things. What are you doing? You are my owner. And then, uh, and then God, in response to that, reveals to him, takes him out, shows him all these stars, and says, so shall your offspring be. And, and God says, look, I'm the one who brought you out. And then verse 8, he says this, O Lord God, O Adonai, O owner God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How on earth do I know? And God gives him a little more information. He gives him his covenant here and, and, and lays it out for him. So when Abraham looks to God as the owner, the one who owns him, complete surrender, God reveals himself in a fresh way like he had never done before. You find the same thing happening with Moses. In Exodus 4, for example, uh, Moses was asked to go bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And then Moses complains. He says, uh, you know, I can't do it. So God first shows him a few miracles. He says, uh, look, put your staff down, and it becomes a snake. Hold a snake, it becomes a staff. Put your hand in a cloak, pull it out, it becomes leprous. Put it back in, it heals. All right, Moses, did you get it? Well, you know, I can't speak, I can't. So Moses says, Adonai, owner God, I can't speak. How will I do it? And, 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 he, and, and he does that. And then God, of course, says, stop complaining. I'm going to give you Aaron, who's going to speak for you, right? So when Moses submits himself and acknowledges God as the owner, the Adonai, God provides a solution, right? And we see the same idea in the New Testament where Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you. If I am really your Lord, if I'm really your owner, you better be obeying, otherwise it just doesn't make any sense to call me Lord. Right? So um, the picture that emerges is this. Our experience of God in the circumstances of life, in the nuts and bolts of life, our experience of God is very closely connected with how we treat him as an owner. 
Is he your Adonai? Is he your owner? Does he own you? Your tongue, your words, your intellect, and your everything. Does he own me? The only, the only right response, the only appropriate response for recognizing ownership of God is surrender and obedience, nothing else. If God owns me, there is nothing I can do but say surrender and total obedience. And this is not a God who's sitting there and cracking a whip, but this is God who loved me so much as to pay for the price of my sin. This is a loving God. This is not just a, a sovereign God without or divorced of love. So obedience in recognition that God is our Adonai. Who am I? Whose am I? Who owns you? It's a question we have to ask because that fundamentally will determine your identity and mine. So let me then close with one aspect of obedience when it comes to our words. I refer to Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So some basic truths jump out of there, isn't it? Easy to understand. Number one. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Nothing foul, nothing uh, unwanted, uncalled for. But only such as is good for building up. Speak only words that are helpful for building up. That's God's word for us. Speak only words that are good for building up. Second phrase, as fits the occasion. Speak only words that fit the needs of the situation or the occasion. And the third phrase there, that it may give grace to those who hear. There is a purpose to our speaking. Speak only words and choose them in a way and order them in a way so that it may give grace, that people may be benefited, they may be blessed, they may be, they may be able to flourish because of the words that we have spoken. So if we struggle with our tongues today, and, and we all do, we all do, in different phases and stages of our walk, the two questions we want to ask, who am I? Created in God's image, created to represent him, am I representing him well? Am I representing him well? Second, whose am I? Is God my Adonai? Is God my owner? Does he own everything? Am I then therefore surrendered to him in obedience in every facet and area of my life, even, even when it is so hard and it goes contrary to everything that I want to do? That is God's call for you and me today. Father, we pray this morning. How sweet are your words to our mouth. It's sweeter than honey. Lord, we recognize as sweet as it is, your call for us is high and demanding. We acknowledge that we are weak, we are fragile, we are fallen, we are futile human beings. But we are saved by grace and we have the Holy Spirit. 
And apart from your energizing and empowering grace, we cannot do anything in and of ourselves. But we express to you, Lord, our desire to walk in step with you, to recognize your ownership in our lives, and to tell you, Lord, that we love to have the fruit of the Spirit evident in our lives. To that extent, won't you help us this morning and even this week and for the rest of our lives. May our lives be lived out, worshiping you for your glory and for our own good. We ask this in Jesus' name.